someone's got to feed the baby, you know, it just so happens to be that women can do it naturally for a couple of years. Um, you know, men have a harder time, although I have heard it happens. <laughs> but, um, you know, it's like someone's got to feed the baby. If you wanted a baby, you know, someone's got to go and kill the bear. So let's just flip a coin. Welcome to the Stand Firm Podcast. I'm Nick Lannon of Grace Anglican Church in Louisville, Kentucky. And on today's episode, we're going to be discussing Beth Allison Barr's new book, The Making of Biblical Womanhood, How the Subjugation of Women Became Gospel Truth. How's that for a subtitle? Dr. Barr is a professor of history at Baylor University. The participants in today's discussion are Matt and Ann Kennedy, both of the Anglican Church of the Good Shepherd in Binghamton, New York, and J.D. Koch of Christ Anglican Church in Mount Pleasant, South Carolina. Let's get right into their discussion. Here's J.D. Well, um, I'm sitting here holding the hard copy of the book, uh, The Making of Biblical Womanhood, uh, because I like to have most of my library, in fact, or at least half of it, are books with which I have had vigorous conversations and many times disagreements. And I um, am grateful for this book. I think it was uh, in that respect. I think it was well written. It was rather charitable given the the energy behind it, I thought. And Matt's going to disagree with me on that. I thought it was um, it didn't it didn't seem to be going out of its way to simply infuriate the people that it was disagreeing with, um, which I which I was grateful for. Um, but I'm I might be in the minority opinion on this uh, on this podcast with that. So uh, I know Matt, you and Anne had the pleasure of of driving cross country while listening uh, to this book and have um, maybe maybe that experience. Um, uh, colored your appreciation of it in a different way. So tell tell us what you think. I mean, I guess just viscerally, I'm not getting into the substance yet. Um, viscerally, it was like listening to a female Episcopalian bishop preach an 11 hour sermon. And you just say every, every line, you know, you're just thinking, okay, there's something there that's true, but then, oh my goodness, this is not true. And, and if you're listening to the Episcopalian female bishop preaching for 11 hours, it was like just so much that you would want to. I don't think Dante hey. had ever experienced that right, right. conceptually could have, because <laughs> right, 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 right. that certainly would have been included in his great uh, well, I guess I, opus. I, yeah, I told Anna it was more like, listen, you know, being, being at maybe a, a, the old diocese of Central New York's diocesan convention. Cause, you know, the way, the way progressives preach or talk or give presentations they'll they'll mix things that sound right and true and good with things that are clear distortions of what is right and good and true and and they'll do it in like kind of machine gun fashion so you you can't you really want to go back and correct every little single thing and you can't and then the whole sum of it is so distorted by the time you get finished that you just feel discouraged like you i can't there's there's so much here how can we possibly undo all that's been said here so that's just that's the way i thought thought i've been been dumped on with this with this massive amount of, of information. Well, I, no, I would agree with that. I mean, I, so I, I don't, I, maybe I have a, maybe I either have grown a thicker skin about that, or I um, was just prepared, you know, my expectations were so low that I guess, um, I guess maybe I was pleasantly surprised. Um, but if, whatever the case is, I do agree with that. I think that in the, the, the sort of classic, you know, kind of obfuscation of the, of the issue, and then you get sort of um, discombobulated a little bit, and then the final, the final uh, place where it lands is, is not something you would agree with. And along the way, it was sort of slightly confusing bits of truth here and there. I mean, I think you're right. I think that's a wonderful analogy to a um, 11 hour, 11 hour Episcopal Bishop sermon. Um, but, Anne, you were sitting right there. I mean, you kept him from driving off the road. So what, uh, what were your voice. thoughts? Well, I got, I, I was profoundly depressed. I, I, by the end of the day, I didn't even know I, I was in a deep spiritual fog such as was seminary for me. I mean, the first semester of seminary plunged me into a really bad depression that took the rest of the time to climb out of a spiritual depression. And um, it, one day was is as unto a thousand days of, of that again. So are you sure you're not still there? That's really the question. Yeah, I, uh, I think I, I mean, it's going to take me a few weeks uh, to climb out of it, I think, but I, I, as I've said to people along the way, when they feel really out of sorts and they don't know why it's, if you're, if you're, if you're very, if you're lied to about the nature of God, 
you're going to feel sad if you are a Christian and, and you may not be able to put your finger on why you feel sad. And I, and I, that, that reading this book was like that going back into that world where people just say so many trite and foolish and untrue things about God that this mm. came to them off the cuff that after a while, the full weight of it is just, it's terrible. And you either go medicate yourself, which I think an increasingly increasing number of people are actually doing, or you, or you cease to be a Christian or, you know, whatever, but you can't just lie and not have uh, an impactfulness on people. And um, so that's what this book is. Um, She's, and, and the hubris of it, the, the hypocrisy of, of being a, an upper sort of intelligentsia, white, middle class, I'm mixing all the categories together, woman uh, who has benefited so much from the kindness of, 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 and, and graciousness of a Christian view of women to just burn that all down because you were upset that you couldn't, you went to a church that wouldn't let you teach 12 year old boys and you took a bunch of women's studies classes is outstanding to me. I'm, I'm, I'm horrified and, but not really because I took all those women's studies classes too I took all that stuff in the nineties and I wasn't impressed with it. I managed to still be a Christian, but apparently you can't do that. Go to Notre Dame, study medieval religious history and be able to see past your own, you know, whatever it is that you have going on. Maybe we should start there just by talking about how she frames her book within the, within a personal narrative. Yeah. Cause she, she starts off with a, a story about leaving or she would probably say it's being forced out of uh, her former for, former Southern Baptist church where her husband worked as youth minister. And uh, the as the story unfolds, you realize, okay, she's there in this church. Uh, this church has a very, I would say, strong uh, complementarian position, so much so that women can't teach uh, boys, Men, yeah, boys over the age of over 13. the age of thirteen, yeah. right? Uh, which is far more complementarian than I am, but but that's a complementarian stance that some churches have, and they were part of it. That was, I mean, I, I would I would expect that that standard was was probably published, so they probably knew it for a long time. Well, I think but, they were expected to teach it also. I mean, yeah, I think they, the, they, yeah. So that was part of you know right. I'm going to hire you to teach um, in accordance with. Um, our confessional standard of this right. particular church. I mean, that's what that's what it was. And you're right. I mean, she. So sorry, I didn't mean to interrupt you. No, so, so, so over the course of uh, say five year period, they change their minds about this, and though, and so her husband goes to the board and says, "Hey, we've changed our minds. We want you to reconsider the church's position on women." And they, the church, says, "No, we're not going to reconsider that." And <laughs> moreover. Right you need to hand in your resignation because we're not going to continue to pay you to, if you disagree fundamentally with our, one of our core stances. And she treats that as a, as an act of oppression as if she's been victimized in some way and he's been victimized in some way. But, you know, in reality, if you're part of an organization, this goes to the Episcopal church thing too, really. When Bishop Spong decided he no longer believed in a personal God, <laughs> deistic essence or whatever it is he believes in, you know, he would time for him to say you know what i probably shouldn't be part of the that's this. right that's Maybe right even go start something else um and that's the same thing with this i think i think at that at the point they realized they were no longer in line with the confessional standard of their their parents they should have left and it's not oppression for the for the church to say no we're going to uphold our standard that's right and that means we can't have your husband on staff and uh you know i'm sure that there was some disagreement and some maybe some some mean things were said in the process of that but but that's not it. You're not being victimized because you know, the church doesn't agree with you on this. Um, but anyway, her whole book is framed in, 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 within that narrative. She weaves her narrative in and out of her documentation of the history of what she says patriarchy slash complementarianism is, 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 is and how it is, is destructive and ruinous to the church. That's right. I mean, one of her that I mean, I, I agree with you. And that's exactly how 
you know, that sort of victim narrative uh, persists to the end, uh, where in the final chapter, she basically, um, you know, sort of admonishes people to get up and fight, you know, like um, get up and uh, stop it, you know, stop. She uses a, uh, I think it's a mad, mad, yeah, just stop, stop doing it. Stop. You know, but one of the fascinating, and I thought this was, this was, um, it's the first I had heard it so, so sweepingly, um, was that she, uh, well, not, that's not true, but it was the first time I had been given to really consider it and its, and its radical implications was that the idea that the patriarchy was in fact, um, or male headship or, or um, uh, submission or whatever the case may be, was um, a function solely of sin and the fall and that there was nothing. I mean, I know that we've had this discussion before, but it was for the way that she framed it and sort of juxtaposed the even the uh, Epic of Gilgamesh, you know, over against, um, you know, as part of the, the, the recorded kind of, you know, narrative history of the world and talked about sort of Aristotle and kind of the pagan idea as being simply baptized into the church over against the actual Christian ideal, which would have been, I guess you may use the term egalitarian was, um, I mean, that's, 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 she finally articulated, I think in, in a very clear way for me, the implications of the, the radical implications of what's actually being argued. Cause you're, you're literally saying that this understanding um, that we've come across now has upended the, what the church has understood uh, the, the, to be a part of um, common grace, you know, divine revelation of 4,000, you know, years of recorded human history. I mean, that is that I, I remember having a conversation with someone um, who was uh, very much an egalitarian in these issues. And I, um, I said, you know, I, I hear what you're saying. I've read many of the books you're talking about. I'm, I'm working through this issue. I'm interested, particularly for people who are taking the Bible seriously, um, what they have to say about this. And if they disagree with me, that's fine. I mean, we can, we can work through this. I said, but you do have to realize that, that, this, is, that this makes the Reformation and the insight into salvation almost pale in comparison to how dramatic a reordering of the world this would be if this is, in fact, the case. It has implications for, for well, everything. Um, and again, that's not saying that you would have to adopt this sort of strict complementarian position that this church, the one uh, Ms. Barr came, Dr. Barr came from. But nevertheless, um, you know, if you reject that entirely as a function of the fall, well, then you are going to rebuild something that looks quite different than than anything we have have um, considered thus far. And I think that's that's part of the radical you know, move. I'm not saying that she would necessarily um, say that, but I know that there are people who think that and they're underlying every single male female interaction for all of recorded human history has been this antagonism and this war um, that nothing good has come from you know, or sort of right. nothing. And, and it's, it's, it's really quite staggering. I mean, she even says in the beginning that patriarchy patriarchy is defined. She defines it as a general system that values men and their contributions more than it values women and their contributions. I mean, I think that's an incredibly cynical way of describing even what you would understand patriarchy to be because I, I don't think anyone would have said that women were less valuable or less important to the, to the shared human uh, reality of needing to contribute to our, to our health and well-being. Um, well, that, all, that goes, yeah. I'm sorry. No, that's it. I mean, that's, that, I think that goes to the, to the heart of, of the egalitarian argument, which is, which is if you have a distinction in function, then you aren't are necessarily a hierarchical distinction in function. You necessarily have a distinction in an essential worth, right? So, so if, if, a, if a woman is going to be submitting to her husband, she's necessarily less human than her, than, than the husband. That's, that's the, that's the, you can't have, go ahead. Um, there is, can you, Jade, can you just read that definition again? Because I could, I could, um, I could say where that, that, that kind of patriarchy actually could work out. Yes. She, she says a general system that values men and their contributions more than it values women and their contributions. Okay. So replace the word men with a very obvious word, God. A system where in you value the work of God as mm-hmm. father more than you value the work or contributions of any other person, mm-hmm. in any person. And if God is a patriarch, if he calls himself father, <laughs> literally is and, patriarch. You, and, and you value his, his definitions of things more than you value anybody else's definitions of things, then you have, then you have a very clear system. Yes. Right. And and you have and you have certain kinds of lines of authority 
Now, if you don't think God is a father, if you think she's your mother or God is a spirit or the Zer, whatever, then yes. yeah, we can all be equal with each other. But so it, her, yeah, her definition is excessively cynical because no, no complementarian that I know says that women and their contributions to society are less important than those of men. And yes. in fact, they go, they go to the nth degree to talk about the work of women and the contributions of women known and unknown as being extremely valuable, Yes, but not in the same way, yes. of course, not in the same way. Uh, but, but really what I hear behind it is not the, not the question of women, but the question of God. Hmm. And that's where, I, it, it ends for me. I just don't want to hear you talk anymore because you're not talking about a God I know. And I'm not interested in your, your genderless um, spirit being. Andrew John. Who yeah. doesn't. Yeah. Yeah. Giant CK one model in the sky. Well, that, <laughs> that yes. distinguishes I mean, what you just said a minute ago and it distinguishes uh, Christian complementarianism from fallen patriarchy. I mean, That's right. And we shouldn't be surprised that fallen patriarchy is the history of the world. I mean, when I told my, I do my pre-marriage counseling to people, I was like, you know, when Adam and Eve, the the curse, I mean, look at what happened. Like they immediately broke the image of God was shattered and the image of God was this, this beautiful relationship of man and woman, which his was his image. And so we shouldn't be surprised that at that fracture, we see the most heat. It's like the atom. I use the analogy all the time. It's like splitting the atom, you know, splitting the male-female binary, as it were, into an unloving, hateful, competitive matrix has destroyed the world. Like, I agree with that. And that there are egregious examples all throughout human history of man's inhumanity to woman and vice versa. You know, that's what's interesting. I mean, if there's a whole industry of people pointing out the fact that there are other ways to be uh, abused than just physically, you know, that there have been, um, that there are, the, the sin is equally distributed across men and women and women have been able to hurt and and um uh, you know the, the 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 friction and the fighting has gone both ways right and that's why the baptizing um the the reconciliation of that image of god in men and women is so central to the bible's uh depiction of the reconciliation of the world in christ because we've actually then been given back this beautiful picture that yes will still be marred by sin but isn't cutthroat anymore you know it's like you can yeah. lay your weapons down that was that was i thought, I thought one of the core uh, really logical problems with her book is is she did assert that that complementarianism's beginning was in genesis 3 not genesis 2 that's right that that the that uh, there's no difference no difference at all from between christian complementarianism and patriarchy and that any attempt to draw a complementarian picture out of genesis 1 and 2 is is it's false and what she didn't do what she had to if she's gonna make that argument what she has to do is deal with matthew 19 and the latter part of ephesians 5 uh, where paul says goes back to go i'm sorry matthew 19 goes back to genesis 2 Yes. And and says when God brings the woman to the man and the man leaves his father and his mother and he clings to, to to her and it should become one flesh. That is that is for Jesus the picture of every marriage. It's 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 about it, that is that is the the prototype of every marriage it's ever made. God joining man and woman together. And then when Paul in Ephesians five setting aside the submission stuff in the first part of, uh, of, of the marriage section there says at the end, he quotes Genesis two again, two twenty four, And God brought the man, the woman to the man and the two should become one flesh. And he said, this is a great mystery. And I'm saying that it refers to the church Christ in the church, Christ yeah, in the church right. right? So that's Paul. Uh, I'm going to use this phrase. I heard her using several times in her launch video that's paul mapping <laughs> mapping the husband wife relationship um into the grid of the yes. of christ and his church yes and, and locating that in chapter one and two yes so and i don't care what you say whether you use the word submission or not christ and his church mm-hmm. are not in an egalitarian relationship Mm-hmm. The, the, you, you, the church is always and everywhere submissive to Christ. Christ is sacrificial toward his church, but Christ does not submit in, in the same way to his church that the church submits to Christ. So if um, all that, that the use of Paul's use and Jesus's use of Genesis chapter two as models for marriage and as models for God's Christ relationship with his church, 
undoes her whole argument. Mm. And, and she never addresses it throughout the book. I mean, maybe I'm missing, missing something, J.D. Did you, did you see her actually head on deal with that analogy? No, no, no. She certainly didn't deal with that analogy. I mean, she didn't okay. deal with, um, I'm just flipping through um, where I'm going here. Uh, I mean, she, she argued that Paul was subverting the um, household codes, the uh, you know, Versatilian household codes, which I, I totally agree with. I agree with that, um, yeah. And I point that all the time. I mean, my analogy is that she takes, you know, it's like having the um, pool rules um, that everyone knows posted and Paul like, you know, ripped them down and took a Sharpie and started rewriting um, not their entirety. He still wanted to be safe around a pool, but he kept putting in Christ as Christ, like Christ, you know, out of love, out of, and which of course is quite a different way of understanding household codes than whatever Aristotle was looking with the, you know, prime mover or whatever. Um, But no, I think you're exactly right, Matt, that this is the, the, the it's unsurprising to me that the stakes of the debate have, in fact, gone into, um, you know, fundamental theological differences around the Trinitarian relations around, you know, the way the father, son, the economic and, um, and imminent Trinity relate per- precisely because where you locate the understanding of men and women and their relation and how it has worked out historically, um, you know, where you locate that, whether it's in Genesis one or two or three, will make all the difference, will make all the difference. And so when she begins with that premise, Ann and I were talking about this before you came on, that you, um, you know, once, you know, your premises will, in many cases, and this is not new to me, um, determine your outcomes, you know, so her presupposition, her premise is that it was, it was post-fall. So then, of course, through that lens, um, everything falls into place. And so I would just simply, not simply, but I would, I would sort of um, vociferously debate that point and point to the beauty of a reordered and redeemed male-female complementarity that, um, yes, still has vestiges of sin and selfishness and pride and anger, lust, envy, malice, all the things that come out of a sinful heart. And yet, um, where we see the Holy Spirit present, i.e. the fruit of the Spirit growing in the lives of Christian men and women together, we see something quite beautiful and something quite um, evocative of heaven, evocative of a time where, where perhaps we would willingly lay down our lives for the sake of the others. You know, we would willingly sacrifice our needs and our desires because out of love for someone other than ourselves. And we see that actually played out, as Paul says explicitly in Ephesians, in and through the work of Christian husbands and wives, um, mirroring the the actual um, death and resurrection of Christ for his church. And so, right. you know, I'm not, whatever else you want to say about all of the, the various debates about complementarity or egalitarianism and, you know, what part of the spectrum you want to be put on. I mean, that is the part that for me became uh, clarified the 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 stakes of the debate as it were because we've talked about before i i um was not um and, and would consider myself i don't know on the spectrum of of things of sort of i mean i worked in in the episcopal church in the church of england for 12 years you know women bishops and and all sorts of various permutations of of male female authority and relations and it wasn't a huge cause of concern for me at the time because i wasn't fully aware of how deep the issue was going you know i thought it might have just to do with whether or not people whoever got to wear a uh, the point he had, as it were, you know, and so I was like, well, you know, that doesn't in my experience, for the most part, the the less interaction I had with bishops, the better. So it didn't really matter to me what, uh, <laughs> what was what. But then when I began to actually uncover and dig into the the how deep this went deep to the to the exegesis of Ephesians five, deep to the exegesis to the disagreements about uh, Genesis one and two or verses three, deep to the to the idea that even something as crucial, I think, to the Bible as husbands and wives were functionary positions and not, as it were, divinely or ordained ontological, for lack of a better word. You know that this relational ontology of what becoming a husband or becoming a wife, you know, um, or or being a son or being a daughter, like these were these were flawed and shattered and yet redeemed and restored in Christ. And when I began to realize that that was the nature of the debate, well, then it actually started pushing me further. um, You know, well, I got more interested in it. Let's put it that way. Um, and, And that's where I find myself now is that I felt at the very least, the good thing you could say about this book is that it was very clear and consistent from a given state of of presuppositions. It was a, a logical outworking 
of her uh, to her final chapter, which was essentially a call to militancy <laughs> for, yeah, well, for anyone that disagrees with her. No, but that's the thing. If you don't understand her her presuppositions going in, you're gonna you're gonna think. And I don't think a lot of people think about presuppositions when they're reading a book. They just kind of read a book, and you know she uses a lot of Christian language, and you just and you you, you may not recognize it as uh, as a feminist analysis of history, which is what it is, because she's coming in with the assumption that it's better for women to have autonomy from husband and children than it is for women to be tied and to husband and child. So, so for example, we, we mentioned this in our podcast, but uh, for example, it's, it's, it was better the industrial revolution when women were working in sweatshops was good, was, was yeah. better for them because they had female yeah. community, right? They, females were, were with females in community. And then, it was really bad when after the reformation uh, women were sitting with their husbands in church and their families rather than on the other side of the church with the women, which is what it was pre-reformation. So it was a really bad shift that made the women have to sit with their families. Yeah. I saw that. That that was that, that, that there, the mask slips and you see, you see really where her, where her good and evil lies. The good for women is always to be with women um, the evil is to be tied to family. And, and so that's, that's how that, that shaped everything she wrote in this book. Yeah. Well, there is a, there is a classic um, sort of tying the freedom of a woman um, to her ability to have or not have children on her own um, for her own, um, you know, choice, which of course is a platform of the feminist movement. I mean, this is Betty Friedan and right. Gloria Stein. I mean, this was um, Margaret Sanger, for instance. I mean, this was her um, back in the turn of the, 20th century, like this would, this would free women finally from this, this curse and this obligation uh, of children. And I think that, that kind of idea, I mean, I know she has her own children and I don't think it would be as explicitly stated, but there is that you're right, this underlying assumption that, that something that would prohibit the autonomous freedom of a woman, you know, was considered like a child, you know, right, like right, a husband, right. um, like a responsibility, yeah. domestic responsibility. I mean, someone's got to feed the baby, you know, it just so happens to be that women can do it naturally for a couple of years. Um, <laughs> you know, men have a harder time, although I have heard it happens, <laughs> but, um, you know, it's like, someone's got to feed the baby. If you wanted a baby, you know, someone's got to go and kill the bear. So let's just flip a coin and, uh, and see how this works. I mean, that's kind of the, that and again, back to your point, Anne. There's such a, in my way of reading, you know, sad, um, a sort of cynical depiction of what must have, at the very least, been at times a beautiful relationship, i.e., that between men and women. You know, because there are people have written love poems, you know, throughout all of human history, and people have haven't haven't tried to have children. You know, it wasn't just that they wanted progeny to perpetrate their own their own selfish aims. Like some parents actually enjoyed having their children somewhere. I know it's hard to believe, you know, somewhere, somewhere, some wife um, actually found uh, great solace and joy in being taken care of and provided by a strong man who killed the bear while she was feeding the baby. I mean, that, and all of that can't be allowed because if you allow for any of it to have been good at all within this possibility that perhaps more of it was than you considered, you know, and that's what, the problem I have with a lot of these, these purportedly Christian books. And again, I'm not questioning, I mean, she's that, except for the fact that you want to say, is there no sense in which perhaps the goodness of God shown through this restored relationship between men and women um, in a, in such, you know, in such a way that it was perhaps, it perhaps was, was beautiful. I mean, you're not going to allow for that at all, but it's like, no, you know, every time a woman had more than, uh, a child she was a slave to her husband and to into the patriarchy it's like well you know that's just a different way of reading the entire bible and the entire history of the world which she at least admits you know all the way back to to um to, to genesis one two and three but she doesn't factor in um and which is the increasing if you want to go into the experiential realm you know what's the lived experience of women in the west there is a, a, an increasing and great, great burden of shame that women feel when they want to get married and have a child and take care of that child. That is just not an option for them. If they want to be uh, part of the conversation, the experience of all women in um, society, uh, they should go to work 
they should not stay home. And I, I know that because I've, I've been with women over the last 20 years in the church who uh, mostly have to work, who would love not to work, but have to work. And then if they don't have to work outside the home and they get to stay home, they feel so guilty that they then just homeschool, you know, like the homeschool movement was part a way for women to say, well, I'm doing something important here. So leave me alone. Well, that's true, though. It's not the patriarchy that cut that out, that identity out from under women. It's the it's feminism that destroyed the the free and easy way the, the the life that women could have in the home with their children and doing some things that they loved. It's it's women it's feminism that came in and told them that that was bad, and they needed to make something of themselves. And so now, if they really do want to be home, they had better add something to it or or get a side gig or prove that they are worth something. And that, you know, she tells the story one way. There's another way to tell the story. Um, There's another way to assemble all the facts and explain the behavior of people. Um, And I, the way that she does is, is a, it's that, that version that she's just given again, as we said, it hit the Episcopal church 20 years ago. She's behind the times and where other people are trying to, you know, salvage the wreckage and she's just, you know, whacking it all out again. It's, it's really discouraging. Yeah. I was, I was marking to that point. Um, She talks about an anecdote she had with a student of hers who grew up in, I guess, you know, um, exhibit a terrible uh, patriarchal church. Um, And she was talking to a woman student of hers that her dad evidently said to her, you know, she didn't need to go to college because she didn't want to, you know, why would I need four years of college when I wasn't going to use it at all, at all, just to get married. And, you know, that was presented as exhibit a of like the wrong way of thinking, but I think the real wrong way of thinking in that, I mean, obviously uh, there's a lot of wrong way of thinking in that, but the real wrong way of thinking is just a sort of purely practical, functional, utilitarian uh, understanding of, of knowledge acquisition in the first place. Like the idea that, uh, the idea that an educated, you know, woman is a, is a, is a useless idea, of course, should be, uh, I think it's, I think, I think that's should be on its face rejected. <laughs> I hope that's clear. But the idea that if you don't monetize that, or that somehow you would quote unquote, waste it on a relationship with your husband and, and through your children is, is, is a joke. No one is, I don't know anyone that's saying that. And if they are saying that, then they should be corrected. But most people I know are saying, you know, that there is a, there is a joy to a, as it were, a domestic life that if, if you don't have to do it, but, but there's no shame in, in having that. And that there does seem to be a, you know, as it were, divinely orchestrated waltz that happens between men and women, or if you're down in South Carolina, there's the shag dance uh, that's beautiful to watch when it works properly, because it's, it's, it's clearly divinely orchestrated down to the biology to be um, to be uh, hand in glove, to be to be something that works um, together for the good of of the world. You know, I mean, this is what I mean, I'm just starting to preach my marriage sermons over and over again, you know, that like the unification of two sinners hearts, you know, that bring, uh, coming back together is the creation of a little church where in every church, you know, forgiveness, mercy and grace is preached. And then you bring another soul into the world and you begin to mark and walk through and, you know, the kingdom of God is built one brick at a time. And so, you know, I mean, this is how this works. And so to to let go of that is uh, just something I'm not willing to do because not simply because I haven't been persuaded from the scriptures, but because it's scripture, tradition, and reason. You know, all of our Anglican measures of authority point to the fact that there is something beautiful in the restoration of men and women, um, not simply sort of an egalitarian uh, sort of unifying um, sort of flattening out of any differences, but a celebration of the gift of those differences in service and joy and love of each other. And that's something that, um, well, she rejects, um, or the, at the very least sees, sees any emphasis on that as, a, as an overreach of the patriarchy. Yeah, I mean, there were some, some things I think we could say that were good. I, I, one particular section where I thought I agreed at least 75% of what she was saying had to do with the purity culture. I mean, she was, yes. uh, she, there, there were some real, real problems with the purity culture and, and, the, and the, I would say, hyper-legalism focused around you know, women's behavior that but associated it, with that but i think but, again you got to point to ann's con, point about the context in that mm-hmm. you know i mean you were dealing with in the, in the 50s 60s and 70s 
uh, you know, 60s in particular, you know, the quote unquote sexual revolution, you were dealing with professing Christians who also were, were men and women, which means that they were sinful, you know, they were sinners saved by grace, who were being uh, inundated with a level of access uh, to pornography and sort of sensuality that at the very least in the American evangelical culture has uh, had been unfathomable. You know, maybe if you had gone to uh, you lived in Weimar, Germany or something, you wouldn't even blinked or if you were a Parisian or something, you would have thought. But if you were in, you know, if you were in Bunky, Louisiana, and all of a sudden you could stop on your way home at the gas station and buy, um, you know, unimaginable um sort of the uh, decadent and debaucherous um, materials and without even anyone knowing, um, you know, there was a lot of reaction to that. And a lot of it was overreaction, but it was an equal and opposite overreaction in many ways, you know? And so I, again, I'm not defending any of, I thought the story about the tank tops was, was, you know, I think that was a pretty good example of, of an overreach. You know, I thought bringing the t-shirts in was kind of a, um, you know, that was a good example. And I was, I was like, well, that's, uh, that would have, would have taught me something too. And yet, you know, I, again, like we talked about with um, Dumay's book, uh, Jesus and John Wayne, there was a, there was, there was little appreciation for what, what world, the, the people that were running that camp were watching a world devolve around them into a sort of uh, sex obsessed predatory, you know, uh, sort of wasteland of where women in particular, you know, the great irony of all this women, the whatever protections, um, you know, Victorian, you know, what are all the faults of Victorian England? You know, women were mostly unafraid to to walk down the street in many areas. You know, of course, there were areas and but there was some there was some shame in being a scallywag, you know, like you, you, if you fathered a child out of wedlock, you were required at the very least in good society to take care of them. You know, I mean, even if you wouldn't give them their names, things like this. Um, and so these people during purity culture were watching whatever protections that, um, that had once been, you know, their, their daughters could have just expected when they went to college. I mean, my grand in-laws talk about, they went to the same college that my, that Laz and I went to that um, when they were dating, you know, she had a chaperone that basically like shadowed them when they went out. And there was a, a boarding house in, in downtown Lexington, Virginia, uh, where all of the dates would have to go and they had to check in at a certain time. And if they didn't do that, well, then it was, you know, great shame and, and uh, d- you know, uh, would befall your house, you know. And so that was the world that was had some problems, but it was different problems. And anyway, that, that was a little bit of a of just a, of a not a defense of purity culture um, as it was most egregiously uh, experienced. But I do think that the main point of all these and Anne, you've been saying this for a while now is that the context, the societal context within which these problems arose were very little appreciation for the fact that these were imperfect people trying to address a, a very real and present danger. And when we don't realize that, well, then, you know, we, we don't have as much sympathy or grace for them. I mean, like, for instance, men and women relationship in general, like after the pill and um, what's her name? Um, uh, she's wrote a book called it's called After the Pill. Um, she writes her first things. What is her name? Uh, oh, Mary uh, Everstadt. Right. She wrote this book like, you know, so after the pill came, you had um, some liberalization of of marriage and divorce laws, which the Episcopal Church led. And all of a sudden you saw this precipitous decline in the longevity of marriages. Again, there's two ways to look at both of these. But you had all of this functioning in the water during this sort of very tumultuous um, decade or decades and century over which she's writing a lot of this. Um, And so there was a there was a real there was a real argument going on, you know, and fundamentally the argument was what does it mean to be a, a human being in the image of God, male and female, he created them. What does that mean? How do we work that out? And um, we're still continuing that conversation to this, to this day. Well, and that's, that's, I mean, that's one thing I'm, as the conversation has gone on for the last now, I don't know, 20 years in evangelicalism, I do think I'm, I myself have, have lived in the sort of, vortex of, of frustration about what are women supposed to do and how are they supposed to be and where should they be in the church and when should they speak? These are actually really basic and necessary questions to pose and then to find answers to because women are educated now. They do have to work outside the home. They are able to control their own fertility. And, and here's the kicker. They're able to do a lot of work that men are able to do. 
there's a, been a flattening of, of labor out, at least in the middle class, you know, but even among, well, now we're making it so that nobody has to do any work. There, there are no jobs for uh, people who don't want to be highly educated. That's a huge, huge problem for men and women. Um, but yeah, I mean, if you consider my day compared to Matt's, we have the same day. We work out, we cook, both of us do that. We both sit in front of our computers. We both yell at the kids. We, we, you know, we go to we church. say strong things on the internet. That's right. We say strong things on the internet. Um, right. Like it's very, there's very, um, it's very hidden. The differences between us and our makeup in, at least we feel them between the two of us, but we don't necessarily broadcast them all over the internet all the time, we can do very similar kinds of work. And because the church and the complementarian world has not figured out how to let women talk in the context of the church, <laughs> um, which they should have spent the last 50 years figuring out under what parameters could women speak in the church. And instead of doing that, they didn't do that. They, you know, passed out T-shirts and um, and preached endlessly, at least not in the Episcopal world, obviously, but in the sort of, you know, very, very um, conservative worlds. What will the women wear? What will they wear? You know, that was everybody's major anxiety. What will they wear? Not when will they be allowed to speak and where will they be allowed to speak? And I think that was... You know, I, I gave Amy Bird's book a very gracious reading because I, I really like her and I liked her first two books. And I, um, you know, I know there's a lot, people have found a lot of problems with them and I think that's fair. But, you know, I think she was, she was very frustrated because she'd been trying to educate, get women to be educated in the church so they wouldn't commit, be the, the portal of heresy into every single church. And nobody listened to her say, we need to educate the women. We need to educate the women. We need to stop ghettoizing them and letting them talk to each other, but never letting them have any conversant relationships with men or elder boards or anything. Um, and so that, you know, but now that conversation is over and we're back to well, like blow it all up. Now, well, I mean, no, the consequence is they get taught by Beth Allison Barr and Kristen yeah. Day and yeah. Jane Hammaker and, right. yeah. and so yeah, there's a big, big, big problem that, and so we actually do still need to go back and answer the question. Mm -hmm. And different churches with different polities need to answer the question in different ways. Where and when can the women speak, and and when can they talk to the pastor? When will they uh, be instructed in the Word of God so that they don't? go off the rails and drag whole congregations and um, families with them. And when we actually do answer that question without misogyny, if we create, as I would require in the ACNA, certainly a safe space to have that conversation where I won't be, you know, mashed into the ground from one direction or the other, then we might be able to arrive somewhere and, and, and come into that gracious land that does exist so yeah i think you know the conversation i hate endless conversations but we haven't gotten to think creatively about the changing nature of work the changing nature of, of the, the how the internet has changed things how women actually function in their homes not how they think they should function how they actually do function what do they actually think how should that be brought under the light of scripture? We have a new culture, in other words, than we did 100 years ago. And we're not being allowed to um, evaluate it and think creatively as a church to fix the problems that we have. Well, I mean, I think that's part of that. I mean, I think that's one legitimate critique of some, some realms of complementarianism is that, sure. you do have, is that, is that people are, are playing these roles um, that have been assigned to them, and in some sense, it becomes inhuman. And I think the the, the core doctrine of of the headship, which which points to the relationship in Christ and His Church, doesn't require that necessarily. It's it's just it's, that that aspect of complementarianism, I think, is subject to criticism that it's become too cultural rather than biblical. For sure. Um, and and I think that's that's a fair that's a fair, fair critique. Well, here's where I would answer that, uh, and at least. 
with first glance about how to set up that space. And this is this these would be the requirements. It would be people who like in Claire Smith, if you read this book, God's Good Design, she's interesting. She's got a PhD. She's an Australian and she's it's kind of the book that I would I give to people not with expecting them to agree with her. But I say, here's a pretty good example of a woman who went from kind of a religious study of feminist studies, fully full on 21st century modern woman stance to a rather, rather robust, we should say, patriarchal uh, complementarianism. And it's, it's quite an interesting read. And one of her presuppositions, which I um, was, I was, I was, it struck me in its simplicity and, and it, it, it was simply that she said, when we come to the Bible as Christians, we come to the entirety of it as, as if God has given us those words for our comfort and benefit. And that's, that was something that, you know, I would, would certainly uh, say, but in the context of this conversation, where that spirit is found with respect to this discussion, and you know, I don't hate to, hate to put another one there, but and there's a uh, understanding that that male female differentiation, uh, however understood complementarity, was a design, which I think you could extrapolate very clearly, even if only from biology, um, of God's good design um, over against some form of um, sinful um, brokenness. When you under when you can confess that God's word is for our benefit or whatever it says about men or women and that in that design there is a there's there's a mutual and, and god-given um well complementarity well then we can have a much more fruitful conversation um and, and a very fruitful one in fact because i would be uh, as as keen uh, as you would be to strip away all of the cultural accretions of what it means to be a man or a woman, you know, um, in any given decade and say, you know, this is, let's go ahead and let, um, let the Lord, um, you know, in, in conversation with people that, that love you figure out what in fact his design for you as a woman is his design for me as a man, his design for our church under the submission and authority of his word looks like. And I think that could be a fruitful place, but unfortunately when it's poisoned, which it often is, by either a presupposition that that every complement uh, sort of complementarian idea is a as a function of the fall, which is essentially what she's arguing, well then there's not a lot we can do, not a lot, not a lot of conversation she and I can have about that because everything I'm going to see as a possible beneficial sort of mutual complementarity is going to be seen as a sinful reality, um, or on the other hand. I agree with you. If you just see everything as so clearly, well, this is men's work, women's work, you know, uh, women are, are to have babies, men are to provide. And, you know, I mean, there's some very crude and crass ways of, of flattening out men and women in a, even in a, or, or especially in a patriarchal way. So I, I agree with you that there is a, there's a lot of work to be done. And I, for one, am grateful that these books are coming out because in one, like we talked about with Jesus and John Wayne, it's, it's sort of, it's, it's uncovering, you know, a lot of, uh, uh, or, or it's revealing a lot of where people actually are, you know, with respect to kind of the, um, their, their understanding of scripture, their understanding of the tradition and, and where they're falling on these issues. But it's also sparking and continuing to spark a much needed conversation, uh, which you are, you know, we're all a part of. Um, certainly it's, it hasn't gone away in the ACNA. And, um, and it won't go away as long as Christian people are, far, are arguing, um, trying to figure out what it means to be created male and female in the image of God. And, and so I'm not, you know, I'm just hopeful that there will be more books. At, if they're going to be disagreeable, at, the, at least be graciously disagreeable like this one was, as opposed to some of the others we've, <laughs> we've, we've reviewed, which have been um, just screeds, um, just sort oh, of. Man. I, just, I don't I know. I felt like this one was a screed. Can I go back to something? I wouldn't want to sort of strip back all the cultural stuff and just have the light of scripture. I, um, well, I, yeah, would, I would want to. I want to bring bring each thing under the light of Scripture because God transforms culture. You know that there there are things about uh, the way that men and women relate to each other now, as opposed to seventy five years ago, that are not all bad. That might actually be really great. You know, my grandfather was super authoritarian, and. Um, my grandmother did make him all the sandwiches like and they actually were very happy that way. But I if Matt, if Matt spoke to me the way he speak, spoke, my grandfather spoke to my grandmother, I mean, 
Well, I think he should try it and see what happens. <laughs> um, and so like, but I think we can, you know, we, 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 and they needed to bring the way that we relate to each other to the scripture and have it be in a reformation way, have it be measured by the scripture rather than the other way around, which Amen. is what all these people are doing is measuring the scripture by their own experience they're narcissizing rather than being convicted by what God might say. Uh, so that's, that's tragic. Um, and everywhere it happens, doesn't matter on the right or the left, every single time it should be called out as what it is, which is bad. Yeah, I agree with that. And I, I agree totally. And I think, I, I, I think that that's a better way of saying what I, what I meant. I think we will this book will continue to make the rounds and it will, um, you know, it will fulfill the, the, um, the, the desires of many, which was to find a um, sort of a, a defense against the, you know, the patriarchy, you know, so it even says at the end, I mean, the back it's time for Christian patriarchy to end. It's like, well, I wouldn't want to start that to take that too far in because that is, as we pointed out, the the father rule of God, you know, so we do still pray to our father uh, in heaven, hallowed be thy name. Um, so, you know, um, but I agree with you, Anne. I think that this is a conversation that that where we can have it in good spirit and in in sort of joyful um, even joyful disagreement. Um, it's too few and far between, but the fact that we can have it at least between the three of us, if not, maybe perhaps more, um, is a necessary, um, is something we should pray for, for more opportunities to do, because I think it's, it will be a, a necessary witness and a corrective to, um, to this idea that, that men and women have, have within the church been just simply stuck in this pitted battle against each other for zero sum game of, um, you know, two men, two people enter, one man leave, you know, from Mad Max. It's like, well, maybe, maybe there's more to it than that. Just before we close, I know we've been going on for quite a while, but uh, the, I think we should name some of the more egregious things. And I, I just, just real quickly, the three things I noticed, which were just, which, to me were even more more striking than what I read in Dumais' book. Um, the first was the assertion, and I mentioned this online, the, that, that the woman, the Canaanite woman, the Seraphonician woman, corrected and, and won an argument against Jesus. Didn't Shorey, uh, Jefford Shorey preach that? Yeah, uh, I know. Like down well, in I, the Philippines or something like that, <laughs> yeah, uh, yeah. like 10 years ago. Like yeah, she preached I, that, no, that Jesus had been racist. Uh, yeah. that, that's what she said. They were and called, he, you know, about the dogs. Racist. So yeah. what, just just kind of think about the Christological implications of that, that, that you know, when Jesus says, everything that I say is from the Father, and then it turns out that the father also is racist. So, so yeah, I mean, it, it's, it's, it's amazing that someone who claims to be a Christian could say that Jesus you know, kind of blindly accepted the cultural prejudices of his day and articulated them and was corrected in an argument um, with someone, um, which, which does say something about the question of his sinlessness, his, uh, his, the, the hypostatic union, all kinds of things. Are, are well, then had, and then, and then proceeded to write a whole pearl clutching chapter on the heresy of the ESS eternal subordination of the sun. You know, yeah. it's like, yeah. well, well, you know, we, two can play at this game, in fact. Right. <laughs> right. I mean, we get the, the second thing I noticed, and that, I, I would love to talk about that, but I can't talk about that right now. But, I understand. But, we have, we have to be <laughs> no, very, like whole can of worms. very careful uh, when we speak. Yeah, about yeah. The, the second thing was the inerrancy. I mean, inerrancy in this book was a patriarchal plot. I mean, the, the reason we have yes. the doctrine of inerrancy is because men wanted to shut women down. That's right. That's, that's, and that, that I'm, not, I'm not being, I'm not being hyperbolic. That really is her argument. And it does a, a terrible injustice to 2,000 years of Christian history. You, you ask Irenaeus, does the Bible err? He's going to say no. You ask right. Athanasius, does the Bible err in any way? No. Any, any of the patristic fathers you ask that, they'll tell you that. Um, maybe the doctrine of an error. Well, there's your problem. You just said patristic and you can't maybe, do that right, right. Well, right. maybe maybe in its modern iteration you're gonna oh, have, Matt, you need to get we have to reprogram you <laughs> it's been so. articulated in the modern era in a in a way that that maybe is 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 more precise but it, it's been there forever 
And it's not a patriarchal plot. It's actually a sincerely held belief and doctrine that flows from the idea that Christ is God and yeah. he, is, he, is he is the word of God who's breathed out the scriptures. Um, thirdly, the, tra the trans translation. Section, yes, I was about to I wanna say which, something which about that too. Just, which was, oh my goodness. You, you wonder, did this belied, I think, her, her lack of um, experience in the, in the, in the material? because she blames the English language. I mean, it, it wasn't just the translators, it was English itself, which is patriarchal because of its, of its use of masculine pronouns or masculine terms for mixed groups. And so she's defending the TNIV, the, the, the new international version, which uses gender, gender neutral language. In that whole section, she fails to mention that in Greek, you have the very same convention. So that if you're trying, like the ESV does, the NASB does, does, if you're trying to translate a Bible version from, word for word from Greek to English, you're going to use that convention because it's there in the Greek. If you're going to the Old Testament and you're using a, a mixture of the, of the Septuagint with the, with the Masoretic text, there are places you're going to favor the, the Septuagint version and you're going to then have that same, that same convention in play. That's not the patriarchy. That's trying to translate accurately what an actual version of the text or what, what the actual manuscripts say. But she seems to not be able to understand that or, or not be able to articulate that even. Well, it fits a different narrative. Um, I mean, I thought what was funny about that was the um, the appeal that the everyone was reading the Bible before the Reformation. I mean, no one no one argues that they were arguing that they didn't have the Greek manuscript that Erasmus pre presented to Luther, which which had significant ramifications for how people read the Bible. You know, but I thought that was kind of a a silly thing to say. And I also thought that the the sort of laying the blame at the Reformation for a uh, baptizing of the sort of domestic life was somehow a bad thing that all of a sudden, you know, Luther's insight that you didn't that the most spiritual could actually be um, didn't have to be nuns or the religious. Um, they could actually be a husband and wife could be just as as spiritual as uh, as the pope and and the nuns which is actually an incredibly beautiful thing. I mean, if you read some of Luther's writings, you know, he was a priest. He was a, you know, Catholic priest. And then um, Katarina von Bora was a nun. You know, and so they were uh, late to the game, as it were. You know, I think they ended up having somewhere eight, nine children. Uh, one of them died. But, um, you know, but some of his writings in particular about about Katie, as he called her, and marriage as a as an estate. And some of it's some of his most beautiful. I mean, so, you know, if, I mean, some of his most human and most beautiful and and to somehow to somehow read that that was a negative fruit of the Reformation. I just, you know, many times throughout the book, I just kept writing sheesh. I was like, oh, goodness, like, that's just a different world. I don't want to, I was like, I, you and I are watching a different movie. Uh, and I just, I don't want to know what, what came into to, to make you see that way. But, but I'm glad that I've been spared some of it. But yeah, so I think that that's kind of, I, I share those criticisms with you. Um, and I guess, like I said in the beginning, I was just bracing myself for, for something altogether uh, more offensive that maybe that was why I was just grateful that, that I wasn't, um, you know, I, I wouldn't, didn't, I may have drive, driven off the road if I'd heard it read. I don't know. So I'm, I'm not <laughs> disagreeing with you there. I think that the question of, of whether women can order their lives in a biblical way is a really great question and i'm still waiting for somebody to answer it and um so someone should do that but this wasn't that <laughs> <laughs> i think that's a good place to end uh, you mean that a uh, year of li biblical li living by um by the late, rachel uh, held evans you know that didn't do it for you well that was the worst book ever so <laughs> Well, we'll continue to live in that hope. And I think that um, I think it's a worthy endeavor to, um, you know, you should you're endeavoring to do such. And I mean, I know y'all just as Liza and I are trying to trying to submit our relationship um, with each other and, and individually before God to the scriptures. And we'll continue to talk about this and work it out. And um, Matt will be interested to know when you come up with the definitive um, sort of formulary of when and how women can speak in your church that you'll just share it with the rest <laughs> of us. So we can, um, we can now know uh, that on your women, exactly. Right? We can exactly, we can know exactly how, <laughs> how, when I need to bring a box of t-shirts to your church. Uh, <laughs> and how that would work.
All right. Well, see y'all next week. All right. We'll be back next week indeed. Thanks so much for listening to this episode of the Stand Firm Podcast. If you want to keep the conversation going, we hope you'll be in touch with us. You can rate and review the podcast on iTunes. Send us an email at mailbag at standfirminfaith.com or join the Anglicans for the Gospel Facebook group. Thanks to Matt and Ann Kennedy and to J.D. Koch. I'm Nick Lannon, and Lord willing, we will be back next week. Until then, by the grace of God and Jesus Christ, we'll be standing firm. Mm-hmm.